Well, as we're coming out of Thanksgiving and going into Christmas, there are plenty of tasty treats to eat. So as you looked at my sermon title this morning, the parable of the 10 pounds, are you gaining or losing them? Some of you may have thought about the battle with the bathroom scale. Uh, But the way in we're going to be talking about today has nothing to do with our weight here on earth, but it does have to do with what we do during our time here on earth. What we're going to be looking at today is where Jesus is talking about how faithful we are in this lifetime will determine the rewards and responsibilities we have when we get to the eternal state. As we turn in our Bible today to Luke chapter 19 and verse 11, we're going to be looking at the parable of the Minas. Now, this is the final parable that Jesus teaches on his way to Jerusalem. You remember he's in Jericho, he's on his way to Jerusalem where he's about to die on the cross. As we look at this parable, what we're going to find is we're living in the time between Luke 19:14 and verse 15. We're living in our day and age in these verses between verses 14 and 15 because in this parable we're going to see where Jesus our master has gone home to heaven. But Christ is coming back. He will return to the earth at his second coming. And when he comes, he will bring the raptured believers with him. And those of us who are believers in Christ and return will come with him for the millennial kingdom, that thousand-year period here on earth where Jesus will physically reign from the Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And how we've lived our lives on earth the first time will determine the responsibilities we have during that time. So I invite you to look with me now in your Bible as we read Luke chapter 19 and verses 11 through 27. It says, and while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then returned. And he called 10 of his slaves and he gave them 10 minas. And he said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared and said, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, you are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came saying, Your mina, Master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. And another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I kept put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and you reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, by your own words, I will judge you, you worthless slave. Did you know that I am an exacting man, taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has the ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that to everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have, even what he does have shall be taken away. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. Now as our passage begins... While they were listening to these things, what this has pointed us to is to what we looked at last week. You remember Jesus has come into Jericho. There, there was a blind man, Bartimaeus, that Jesus healed. The man had come to faith in Christ. 
There was another man that Jesus had dinner with by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief tax collector. Zacchaeus had also placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And after doing so, he said to Jesus, uh, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And everyone that I've stolen from, I will repay four times what I took from them. And so when it says they're listening to these things, it's the teaching of Jesus surrounding this meal and, and what's happening here. And as Zacchaeus gives away his worldly wealth, it would have plummeted. Uh, maybe the way some people feel this past week with the stock market crashing uh, and burning. hate to bring up bad, uh, bad news like that, but it's a reminder to us that the worldly wealth we have is passing. The Bible tells us moth and rust and, and thieves can break in and steal the things we have here on earth. But what Jesus is telling us here in this parable is there are things that are true and lasting in heaven that can never be lost. And this is what he's pointing to in this parable. As those who are following Jesus hear this, they thought about the coming payday of when Christ would be the king. Remember, he's in Jerusalem. He's, he's in Jericho going to Jerusalem. They say when he gets up to the capital, as he goes up that ascent of Adamine, the road connecting Jericho to Jerusalem, when he gets to Jerusalem, it tells us here in verse 11, they expected him to establish the kingdom. In the verses that follow our passage today, uh, you'll find the triumphal entry. It's the triumphal entry is, is, is Jesus is coming into the city of Jerusalem. It says in Luke 19.38, the crowds were crying out, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The people say when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to set up the earthly kingdom. And, and those who are followers of his say, well, the payday is coming. As those who are with Christ, we're going to reign with him. But what Jesus says in this parable is his entrance into Jerusalem and the beginning of his earthly kingdom are not going to happen at the same time. He says there's going to be a separation, a separation of time. This is what's happening between verses 14 and 15. And as we're in between, as we're in this in-between time, whether it was a, a new believer like Zacchaeus there in the first century or those of us here today, God is telling us there is a time where we are waiting for the inauguration of his kingdom here on earth. And he doesn't want us just sitting around. He doesn't want us staring up in the sky saying, is this the day? And we're twiddling our thumbs waiting for Christ to return. What he says is, I want you doing my business. I want you working. I want you going about in the mission that I gave you before I left the earth to share the good news, to make disciples of all the nations. And Jesus illustrates this with the parable we're looking at. He says in verse 12, there was a certain nobleman who went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. Jesus is the nobleman. And he's talking about how after his ascension, when he left earth and went to heaven, he says, I'm going to leave this earth. I'm going to go away to a distant country, heaven, and there I will receive the kingdom. God the Father will give to me the kingdom that I will establish when I return back to the earth, when I come at my second coming, when he physically sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, as Zechariah 14 tells us, it will be split in half. And Jesus will establish his kingdom here on earth. He will, he will literally physically be seated on the Davidic throne in Jerusalem during the millennial kingdom, a period of a thousand years, where he will reign here on the earth. And when he returns, you remember the scriptures as we've seen earlier in the series in Luke, we've talked about all the end time events that are coming. And there's something called the rapture. The rapture is where we who are, who are Christians living 
When Christ returns, it says we will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and he will take us to heaven. And we will be there waiting for the return of Christ and we will be part of the army of heaven that returns at his second coming when he sets up this thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth. And when we return with him, we won't be sitting around strumming harps and floating on clouds. If that's your view of eternity, it's a, it's a very poor view of eternity. We are going to be co-reigning with Christ. Here on the earth, there will be a physical kingdom, and we will have responsibilities. This is what's being talked about here in verse 13 when it says, He called his ten slaves, and he gave them ten minas. And he said, do business with them until they come back. He's talking about what we're doing on our first lifetime here on earth, but there will be rewards. Remember, one is given ten cities to rule over, another five. And so in the millennial kingdom, there will be responsibilities where they are reigning. Now, as he he calls these servants slaves here, it's the Greek word doulos. The word doulos means a bondservant. And people in that day understood what it meant. We live in a day where the word slave is a horrific term because of the abuses that have happened. But in that day, there were, there were bond servants who were freely serving as slaves to a master. And they would literally attach themselves to a home where they would go and they would stand at the doorway and their earlobe would be pulled out and they would drive an all through their earlobe, attaching them to the home. Now, they didn't leave them there. But as they, as they pulled the, the all out of their ear, there was a big hole that was left. And as they walked around on the street, everybody could look at a person and see that they were a bondservant. They had bound themselves, attached themselves to a master freely. And so as I said, we think of the word slave as a bad term. But when it comes to being a servant of Christ, it's a wonderful word. We see in Romans chapter 6, verses 17 and 18, it says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, we were slaves to the wrong things. It says, You became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. We are servants of a master who has freed us. When we attach ourselves to him as a bondservant, he releases and he frees us from the bonds of sin. He's loosed our chains, and as a response of love, we serve him. We serve him and we share the message of his life-giving gospel that we found so that others can find it as well. Now, in this parable, it says that the master gave to his servants Amina. Amina was, uh, some translations that you see in front of you, some English Bibles use the word pound. And Amina was a physical weight of measurement. It was one and a quarter pounds, 1.25 pounds. And in Ezekiel uh, chapter 45, verse 12, we're told that 60 shekels make up Amina. So it's it's a measurement of weight that spoke of money. And uh, Amina was equivalent to about three months of pay for the average person in that day. Now, that's a very significant amount of money. Imagine somebody coming to you and saying, here are three months of pay for you. And they gave it to you. And they said, now, there's an entrustment that's given to you. This isn't for you to spend on your pleasures, but it's, a, it, it's to be used uh, for the master. You know, when we work, we, we trade our time for money. And so as you think in terms of Amina, it's both a stewardship of our time as well as our money. Now, in verse 23, we're told very clearly who the money belongs to. We don't see this as well in the English text, but in the Greek uh, grammar here, there's an emphasis on the money being the master's. 
The, the master literally says, my money, in the original language. And so what he's saying is it's not the slaves to do with what he wants. Rather, it's a stewardship to take the master's money and use it for his work. Now, this is true of everything we have. Whether we're talking about the money we have in the bank, the portfolio we've built, uh, or the, the physical skills or talents we have, we can think of it in terms of this is mine. But remember who gave us even the breath in our body, who gave us the physical strength, who has given us the gift of a, a day to live. It's God. So ultimately, everything we have belongs to him. And he wants us to enjoy these gifts while we're here on earth, but he says you're going to be held accountable for what you've done with what I've entrusted to you. In Matthew chapter 25, there's another parable. It's called the parable of the talents. And if you've ever read it, you know that each of the servants gets a different entrustment. Uh, There are differing amounts given based upon the abilities of each servant. Here you notice that every single servant is given the same amount, amina. So what I want you to think about is a bank account. I want you to imagine that you have a a bank account that has $86,400 in it. And this is a, a, a really special bank account because not only is there so much money in it, but it's a bank account that at the end of every day, your $86,400 goes to zero. Now you say, I don't really like a bank account like that. But listen, the next morning, there will be a new deposit of $86,400 put into your bank account. Every single day, your bank account at midnight will zero out, but the next morning, you'll get a new uh, deposit of $86,400. Would you like a bank account like that? And if you had a bank account like that, wouldn't you make sure you spend every penny every day Because you know that at the end of the day, there's no carryover. It's gone. Well, let me tell you something, friends. We all have a bank account like that. It's called time. Because every single morning, God gives us 86,400 seconds. And at the end of the day, it zeroes out. There's no carryover. Whatever we didn't invest that day with our time, it's gone. It's gone for good. But each morning... God gives us a new deposit of 86,400 seconds. And as you think in terms of that entrustment, that stewardship of your time, what are you doing with it? What do you do with your time each and every day? How much of it is invested for God? You know, the Bible tells us we receive all kinds of entrustments. Another one is found in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. It says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as men, not as pleasing men, but God. We've been given the entrustment, the stewardship of the gospel. Now, what is the gospel? The word gospel literally means the good news. Good news. And what is the good news? Well, the good news is what we're celebrating during this Christmas season that God left his throne in heaven, and he came to earth. He took on flesh and blood. He was born as the baby at Bethlehem so that he could ultimately become the Christ of Calvary. You see, God left his throne in heaven to come to earth because he knew that his sinners, all of us, are sinners. We've fallen short of God's standard of perfection. When we sin, it means we've done something wrong in our life. We've disobeyed. We've made a mistake. We've taken something that's not ours. We've all done that. And it says, because we're sinners, we owe a penalty. The Bible says the penalty of sin, the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. 
It goes on to say, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So the good news of the gospel is God came to earth so that he could ultimately go to the cross to shed his blood, to be the payment for the penalty of sin that you and I owe, the penalty of death. And he didn't stay dead in the the tomb. You'll remember after he was crucified on the cross, he was buried in a tomb. He rose from the dead three days later. The Bible tells us he walked the earth for 40 days. He appeared to more than 500 witnesses. Before he ascended into heaven where he's currently seated at the right hand of God, waiting to return to earth at his second coming when he will establish the millennial kingdom. That's the good news of the gospel. And all of us here who know that truth, all of us here who know Jesus is our Savior, we've been entrusted with the good news of the gospel. And he says we are to be sharing it with others. There was a great missionary by the name of Hudson Taylor. He died in 1905, but before his death, Hudson Taylor tells of an encounter he saw of a a pastor in China with a young man in his congregation, a new believer. And he said, this pastor said, son, how long have you known Jesus Christ? And the young man beaming said, three weeks. The pastor said, that's fantastic. Three weeks as a believer. How many people have you shared the gospel with? And this young man said, pastor, I've only been a Christian for three weeks. And this Chinese pastor responded, when you light a candle, it it doesn't wait until it's burned down halfway before it begins to give light. It, It immediately begins to give light. As you think of one who has the light of the Lord in your life, uh, one who knows Jesus is your Savior, how many people have you shared the good news with? Is it because you say, well, I'm a brand new believer? Well, you already know enough to share the good news of the gospel. It's an entrustment that we've been given. Now, as we look at verse 14, we see that not everyone is wanting to do the work of Christ. In fact, not everybody wants Jesus to be uh, their master. It says, but his citizens, in verse 14, hated him. And they sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. Now, the citizens of the world mentioned here are different than the servants of Christ. These represent the people who were in the crowd that rejected Jesus. Remember, many of the religious leaders, others in that day were saying, he's not the Messiah. He's not the promised one. When Jesus makes his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the religious leaders, as people are crying out, blessed is the king who comes, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, they're going to be saying, tell your people to be silent. Jesus says, if they're quiet, even the stones will cry out. So not everybody received Jesus as the king. There were some who rejected him. And as he gets to this part in the parable, the people in the first century, as Jesus is telling this story of a man who went away to receive the kingdom, but then these people show up and say, we don't want him to be our king. They knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. Because you see, in the first century... Rome was in power, as we've talked about numerous times. It was this foreign oppressing government that had taken over Israel. And what happened in that time, as as Rome was expanding their their empire worldwide in what was the known world at the time, they would set up administrations in a conquered area. And they had puppet kings that they would put in place who were locals, but they were doing the bidding of Rome. So they were the king over the people, but they were representing this foreign power. And the guy in power in Rome when Jesus was born, I mean in uh, Israel, was a guy by the name of Herod the Great. You remember Herod the Great? 
You've read the story where uh, the Magi, the wise men, show up in, the, in Jerusalem. They go to the palace and they say, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? And do you remember Herod's response? Oh, I'm, I'm the king of the Jews. And they go, no, no, no. Who's, where's the real king of the Jews? And, and it says all Jerusalem was, all the people were troubled. And they were troubled. They were frightened because they knew what Herod was going to do. Exactly what we find in the scriptures and what was prophesied. It said that he then, after the Magi, uh, went and worshipped and returned home without coming back. It says Herod ascertained the time that the star had appeared. And then he went and he killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem. Because the scribes and Pharisees said, well, the king of the Jews is to be born in Bethlehem. And he had heard from the Magi when it happened. So being this usurper to the throne, Herod said, I'm going to kill off the coming king. And so he wiped out all the baby boys who had been born within the time frame, saying, there, I've killed the king. But you remember that God had protected his son. He appeared to Joseph and Mary in a dream. He told them to take Jesus and to flee to Egypt. And so Jesus was safe, even though there was the tragedy of these other baby boys who had been murdered. Now, Herod died a short time later, and in his will, he said that he wanted his son, Archelaus, to be appointed as the new king when his time of death came. Now, Rome was in power. They were the ones who had to give the kingdom to the new king. So Archelaus had to leave Jerusalem. He had to travel a long distance and go to Rome. He had to stand before Caesar and be appointed as the king. Now, everybody hated the Herods. And when Archelaus went, there was a group of 50, Josephus, a Jewish historian in the day, tells us that there was a group of 50 religious leaders who went to Rome along with uh, Archelaus. And they stood before Caesar and they said, we do not want him to be king over us. We will take anybody as king except for Archelaus. Now, Archelaus was not real happy about that. He could have lost the throne, but Caesar... Caesar was trying to balance. He had the interest of Rome at hand, but he also wanted to please the subjects because he didn't want riots happening, you know, in this far-off region. And so he came up with a compromise where he made Archelaus ethnarch instead of the king. And what he did was he split the kingdom three ways, among Philip, Herod Antipas, and Archelaus. Now Archelaus returns. He gets back to Jerusalem, and he's mad. And again, what, we, what we're told from history is that 3,000 Jews were slaughtered in the temple because of them trying to spurn Archelaus as king. So everybody in the first century goes, we know all about this. And Jesus is using this as an illustration. And then you remember what the people did with Christ. When he came into Jerusalem, he was ultimately, they, at first they're saying, blessed is the king, but then they reject him. And he's standing trial, and as he goes before Pilate, Pilate tells him, tells the people, Behold your king. And in John 19, 15, it says, They cried out, Away with him, away, crucify him. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. We have no king but Caesar. The people reject Jesus at that time. But Christ is coming back, and he's coming back as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's not coming back as a puppet king. He's coming back as a rightful king because Jesus went away to a country called heaven. 
where he received the kingdom from God the Father, who said, you are the rightful king. And when Jesus returns to earth, he will come as the conquering king, as well as our judge. And in Luke 19, 15 through 18, we're told, and it came about that when he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money be called to him, in order that he might know what business they had done. And the first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing, be in authority over ten cities. And a second came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, You are to be over five cities. There's a judgment taking place. Now, the judgment taking place here is called the bima judgment. And it's called the bema seat because that's the Greek word that we find in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10. There's a Greek word, bematos, bema. And it speaks of a judgment stand. This is what it says in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat, the bematos of Christ, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. This Greek word for judgment seat means a, a, a platform. It, it spoke of uh, a step or a platform where judgments were made. And you've seen a bema seat if you've ever watched the Olympics. Because that's the Greek word that is used, the Greek games, to describe the award stand in the Olympics. There's a place, a step, where the bronze medalist stands. There's a place for the silver medalist. There's a place for the gold medalist. And they're given rewards for running the race well, for being the fastest swimmer, for being the best whatever particular sport athlete they were. That is a reward stand. The Christian does not go before something called the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is found in Revelation chapter 20 in verses 11 and following. And there, that is the stand where a non-Christian goes. The non-believer will stand before the Lord to be judged for their rejection of Jesus and will ultimately be rejected by Jesus. It says that everyone who is before the great white throne judgment is sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. But the believer goes before a reward stand. We're not there where God's trying to decide, are you good enough to get into heaven? We don't get to heaven by being good. We get to heaven by what God's son did when he died on the cross and he paid the penalty of death for our sins. And as those who have received him by faith, our salvation is secure, purchased by the blood of Jesus. But our rewards are dependent upon how we did live our lives. So remember, we will have been raptured We will be in heaven where we see the Lord and we receive our rewards and then we return with Jesus at his second coming. And it's here that this one master, I mean this one slave who had a gold medal performance, his master says to him, well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. The word for good and faithful there is is a word that means literally useful. He receives a verbal commendation. You were a good servant. You were useful to me. He receives uh, an entrustment of the ten cities that he will rule over. There was a... Now, as he's told this, it says, Well done, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. Be in authority over ten cities. This, This word for... When you read there, faithful in a very little thing, it doesn't... What it's telling us is even the little things to us are significant to God. So it's a very little thing. 
Sometimes we think, well, it's only the, the really big stuff that God's going to judge us for, but he says it's everything. Remember, we have 86,400 seconds. What we do with every, every entrustment of time is important to God. There was a conductor by the name of Sir Michael Costa, and he was uh, running a rehearsal where there was this massive orchestra. There was a great choir that was singing, accompanied by the orchestra. And about halfway through the session, when the trumpets were blaring, the drums were rolling, the violins were singing their rich melody, the piccolo player's part came up. And as he, as he was about to play, he muttered to himself, what good am I doing? I might as well just quit playing because nobody can hear me anyway. So he just put his, his instrument up to his mouth, but he didn't play it. And at that moment, the conductor cried, stop, stop. He said, where's the piccolo? You see, maybe others listening to it couldn't pick out that the piccolo was missing, but the most important person, the conductor, realized it was missing. And so it is with God. You can say, well, you know, Roger, what I do for God, it's kind of behind the scenes. It's something that nobody sees. It's insignificant. It's not that important. And nobody notices when I don't do what I'm entrusted to do. Friends, the most important person notices God. God has given us parts to play. He's entrusted us with things. And when we don't do them, it's significant to God. And he says, I I see that you are not doing them. And when we are doing them, he sees that as well. And he will reward you for it. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust, so as to forget your work, and the love which you have shown toward his name, having ministered, and in still ministering to the saints. There's no detail that's too small to serve the Lord in. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 through 24 tells us this. Whatever you do, whatever you do, do your work heartily for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. In the 11th century, there was a a German king by the name of King Henry III. And King Henry III had grown tired of being king. The pressures of being responsible for the subjects, running the kingdom, all the pageantry of the court life, he was tired of it. And so one day he snuck away from the, the, the castle and he went to a nearby monastery. And he knocked on the door and he asked to be accepted as a monk. Now, the religious superior of the monastery was a man by the name of Prior Richard. And Prior Richard is reported to have said to him, Your Majesty, do you understand that that a pledge here is one of obedience? Now, this is going to be hard because you've been the king. And King Henry replied, I understand. The rest of my life I will be obedient to you as Christ leads you. So Prior Richard said, then this is what I want you to do. Go back to your throne and serve faithfully in the place where God has placed you. And when King Henry III died, a statement was read at his funeral that said, the king learned to rule by being obedient. God has placed us all in various roles. Some of you are parents, a father, a mother. Others of you are a son or a daughter. You may be a student. You could be a teacher. You might be a day laborer or a doctor. There are various roles that God has given to us. And he says, each one is an entrustment. Each one is a responsibility, an assignment that I've given to you. 
And the question is, what are we doing to serve the Lord? Are we being faithful in where he's placed us? And as we do these things that God has given to us, he says there are greater things to come. There will be rewards for how you've lived. In Luke 19, 19, it says, And the second one came, saying, Your mina, master, has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Now remember, each one was given the same entrustment. The first one had a gold medal performance. He, he made ten minas. This one made five Half the return on the same uh, investment to him. So God gives proportionate rewards. He says, You're, you had half the return, you'll roll over half the cities, five. Now, it's still a very significant entrustment, rolling over five cities. But I want you to notice that the proportionate reward is for the faithfulness shown. Uh, it's not the same level, nor do we see the same commendation. There are no words of well done, good and useful servant here. As we live our lives, are you living in a way where you're going to hear the words of Matthew chapter 25 and verse 21? There it says in that parable of of the faithfulness of the stewards, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Can I tell you something? That's what I want to hear when I walk through the gates of heaven. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Is that how you're living your life? Is that what you're seeking? The return that you want for the lifetime that you have here? Or is it all about building a portfolio or a name or something that is all going to pass away one day? There are only two things that last for all eternity, people and the word of God. And when we get to heaven, how many people will be there because we were faithful to share the good news of the gospel? Now, I know the Bible is clear. God is the one who draws all men and women to himself. But he's also just as clear in his word that we receive rewards for being the ones who are praying for, sharing the good news of the gospel, sharing our resources to support missionaries or ministries. And as you get to heaven, will you be people poor? Or will you hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Now in Luke 19, 20, we read, and another came. When it says another, this is the Greek word heteros. And that word literally means another of a different kind. Another of a different kind. Some people question whether this person is even saved. Is this a servant who just had no no, uh, fruit from their life? Or is this a non-believer? It's unclear as to which one, but there's no question as to how this person used what God entrusted to him. There there are no words of commendation. There are no words of uh, reward. In fact, there are words of rebuke. As you look at verse 22, he says, you worthless slave. This person was not faithful at any level. He or she took whatever had been given and hid it away. In Matthew 5.15, we're told not to light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand that it may give light to all who are in the house. Do you know anybody who lives their life like a secret service Christian? You know what I'm talking about? Those people who are so deep, deep undercover that nobody even knows they're saved? Is that you? I read somewhere one time where someone said the only way that some Christians will let their light shine is when they kick the bucket 
And the pastor will tell people at their funeral that they were a follower of his. In terms of the rewards, there are none for him. Not only are there no rewards given, but what he had is taken and given to the one who had been the most faithful. Now, we live in a day and age where some in our society say everybody should get a trophy for participation, right? We look at this and we say, well, that's not fair, God. I mean, everybody should get something. Or at the very least, let's make things equal. Why not take it from the one and give it to the guy or girl who had five instead of ten? But do you remember what God says? Faithful in a little will be faithful in a much. He says, these are my resources. It's my money, my things. And I want the best return on what I've entrusted. So I'm going to take and give it to the one who has been most faithful. Now, when this guy says in verse 21, I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. The word used for exacting here is austere. That's the literal Greek word, austere. We translate it into English as austere. And it doesn't mean unfair. This word was actually used to describe the work that an inspector did. Now, if you're sitting here this morning saying, you know, I want God to grade on a curve. I I, I don't want God to, to be, you know, one of those, you know, here's the letter of the law. Here's how things work. Think about what the word means. It's an inspector. So next time you go into your favorite restaurant to sit down and eat, and you know the food inspector's been there. Do you want an inspector who will walk in the kitchen and say, this place is filthy. The food isn't refrigerated properly. It's been sitting out. It's spoiled. This, this meat is undercooked. It's on and on. Well, you know, a little leniency. What's the big deal? You know, we'll give them a passing score. Is that what you want? Well, it's okay if you don't mind things like food poisoning, salmonella, E. coli, things that could kill you. Or think about if you go to the airport and you're about to board a plane and, and the inspectors kind of walked around, they come off uh, and they say, well, you know, the plane's got a few problems, kind of some big things, but it's all right. We're just going to pass it. We're going to show leniency. Would you want to get on that plane and fly? And you're saying, no, my safety's at risk. I want a strict inspector, whether it's the food I eat or the planes I fly on or the car I drive. I want to know the brakes. are. I want somebody who's a letter of the law by the book. I want everything to be judged the way it needs to be judged. Well, friends, that's what God does. God is holy. God is just. And the Bible tells us he has a standard. And his standard is perfection. And we've all fallen short of that standard of perfection. That's Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory, the perfection of God. And as an inspector, he says, you failed. And because you failed, you owe a penalty, a penalty of death. That's Romans 6.23. The wages, what we earn by how we live our life, the wages of sin is death. But the good news of the gospel is the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we have a holy and a just God who is also loving and merciful. And the way these two aspects of who God is come together is through what Jesus did when he came and he went to the cross. Because as Jesus, God himself, God in the flesh went to the cross, he maintained his holiness. He made sure the penalty, the justice was paid, the penalty of death was paid. And at the same time, in his love and mercy, as Romans 5, 8 tells us, he demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
And so when Jesus says, I am austere, I am strict and exacting, it's not unfair. Because he is also the God of grace and love who said, I gave my life so that you could receive the free gift of eternal life. But if you reject my gift, you will be rejected. And that's what these in this passage are doing. We saw in verse 14 that some will reject Jesus. And in verse 27, those who are rejected by Jesus will be rejected by him. Because he says, but these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. He doesn't slay them, kill them, remove them because they didn't do enough good stuff to earn their way to heaven. We don't earn our way to heaven. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 tells us, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. It is God's work on the cross, not what we do that saves us. But if we refuse to receive Jesus Christ as the payment for our sin, then he will be our judge seated on the great white throne judgment for the non-Christian. As you read Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, remember the great white throne judgment says, all the unbelievers of all the ages will come before the Lord and he will open the book of life and their name is not written in it because they rejected Jesus. So then he opens the books plural and he looks at everything you've ever done, good and bad. And he says, you've done a lot of good stuff, but you've also sinned. And because you're a sinner, you have to pay the penalty of death. And you refuse to receive my payment in your place. So you get to pay the second death. It says there in Revelation 20 that they are sent to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And they're separated from God for all eternity. Now, as believers, as Christians, we will not be at the great white throne judgment. That is only for non-believers. But we will stand before the Bema judgment seat. And God will look at what we've done between verses 14 and 15. While the master was home in heaven waiting to return, he says, what business did you do with what I entrusted to you? And it will be determined by what we do with our lives now as we're living here on the earth. Let me close with this final illustration. It's an ancient fable. This isn't from the Bible, but I believe it illustrates what we've been talking about today. And in it, there were, there were some merchants who were traveling through a desert region. And as they, they came to a dried up creek bed, they were startled because there was a voice out of the darkness that, that called out to them. And the voice said, you need to pick up some stones and then journey on as far as possible before you stop again. Now the travelers were told that when daylight came and they saw what they had gathered, they would be both happy and sad. Now they were confused by this. Pick up some rocks, and because we picked up rocks, we're going to be happy and sad. What does that mean? But they obeyed what they were told to do. These merchants gathered up some stones. They stuck them in their bag, and then they traveled on many more hours. And finally, as the the first streaks of dawn appeared in the sky, as the first light was there, they were curious. And they opened their bags and they began to look in them. And as they did so, what they saw was instead of simply seeing some rocks in there, they discovered they were precious jewels. Precious jewels. And it was then that they understood the words they had been told, you will be both happy and sad. They were happy that they had these priceless gems, but they were sad that they hadn't picked up more rocks before they left. You know, as Christians, there's a day coming where we will stand before the Lord. 
And we will all be happy as believers in Christ because we will be welcomed home to heaven, not based upon what we did, but based upon our faith in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross. But there will be a judgment for us. And we will be blessed by the rewards we are given. But I want you to think about your life that you're living this week as you go home. And I want you to ask yourself, will I be, will I be sad? Will I be sad because I only received five minas when it could have been ten? And if you're looking at your life, and it's because you realize you're living more for yourself than the Lord, then, then ask God to help you this week to begin to make the changes in your life to be a better steward of what God's entrusted to you. Will you join me, please, as we close in prayer? Lord God, we thank you for your word that points us first to your grace. Your grace that caused you, God, to leave your throne in heaven and come to earth, to walk among us, to live a sinless and perfect life so that you could go to the cross and pay the penalty of death that we owed for our sins. I pray, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's not yet received the gift of new life, that today they would turn to you that they would accept your gift. As you tell us in John 1.12, but as many as received you, to them, you say, you gave the right to be called children of God. In Romans 10.9, you say, if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we will be saved. And I pray, Father, that they would receive your gift of new and eternal life. And Father, for the rest of us who have already accepted your gift of grace, may we be good stewards of what you've entrusted to us, the time we have, the talents we've been given, the treasures you've entrusted to us. May we use them, Lord, to do your business. May we be found faithful so that when we walk through the gates of heaven, we will hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. We pray these things with gratefulness and thanks. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.